The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, welcome to edition 18 of The Bugle, the world's only audio newspaper for the week beginning Monday the 25th of February 2008. With me, Andy Zaltzman, still in a very cold New York City. There's too much snow in this place, John. I don't know what you people get off on here. Don't worry, Andy. I mean, this is the second and the last time we'll be in the same room. We can now go back to putting a huge ocean between us. <laughs> and the bugle can once more become like the love letters between Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning. Only with less declarations of love and more infantile summations of current affairs. So the bugle does turn 18 today, meaning that it can now vote. But statistically, it probably won't bother. And all you buglers who harbour secret lascivious fantasies about the bugle, they are now entirely legal. <laughs> As always, some sections of the audio newspaper go straight in the bin. This week, a special obituary of the former British Olympic 400-metre hurdle bronze medalist Chris Akabusi, who it happily turns out is very much alive and well. And also in the bin, a special offer. Slam your head against a brick wall 20 times and you will win a free bugle-authorised headache. Top story this week, Castro. Fidel Castro has finally stepped down as supreme leader of Cuba after being in power for 49 years. Which is pretty impressive, especially when you remember that he did that without dirtying his hands by winning a single recognisable election. That is natural leadership talent, Andy. Anyone can win an election. It takes a special individual to wage a guerrilla campaign from a mountain and overthrow a government. And there's a lesson for the Democrats here. They seem to be having trouble deciding upon a candidate, so just get Barack and Hillary to each form an armed militia, and I'm sure we'll have someone by the conventions. America claimed to hate dictatorships, but I say this, don't knock it till you've tried it. So Castro has indeed resigned after serving only the first 49 years of his scheduled 150-year term as king of Cuba. And the corks have been popping in Washington. The US general in charge of ensuring Fidel Castro doesn't get any younger announced excitedly, ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Well, technically... He got himself. Old age got him, really. The inevitable passage of time, but still something got him. How's my accent there, John? Well... I'm trying to blend in. I kind of... It kind of I mean, it's, it's, it's better than it was a week ago, really? but it's still basically racist. <laughs> I mean, that's true. Bush did say that one day the good Lord will take Fidel Castro away. And that also seems to be his only plan regarding bin Laden at the moment. <laughs> it seems that Bush is claiming God as an unofficial CIA assassin bumping off every single enemy that America has ever had, but, on the other hand, also killing millions and millions of Americans over the years. God, it seems, is also a terrorist. But there's inevitably a lot of relief in the White House, John, at the departure of a leader who stands for so much that is opposed to American values, communism, good public health care and adequate social welfare provisions. <laughs> so no wonder those belts are being loosened a little Why bit. Why don't you go back to Britain? <laughs> How dare you speak like that in the land of the free? Uh, over the years, Castro, also known as Roadrunner by his friends for his uncanny ability to avoid convoluted assassination attempts, has certainly split opinion like a banana. He has overseen some truly appalling human rights abuses on the island of Cuba. For example, he has turned a blind eye to the internment without trial of terrorist suspects at Guantanamo Bay. Fidel Castro led a revolution and took control of Cuba by the time he was 32, which is not bad going, but Andy, I'm still only 30, so... <laughs> That still leaves me two years to do that to match him. So look out, Cuba. I'm about to stage a one-man Bay of Pigs invasion. You, sadly, are already too old, Andy. I am too old, John, and I simply don't have the beard growth either. <laughs> Whereas you, 
I mean, you're clean-shaven today, but you could look like Castro by 5pm. All I'm saying is you've already failed to annex Cuba by the time you're 32. I've still got time. Right. Well, I just chose not to. <laughs> I had plans in place from when I was 14. I just decided the people of Cuba, they're not ready for Andy Zaltzman. Cuba's parliament will meet on Sunday to elect a brand-new leader, but a brand-new leader who still has the surname Castro. President George W. Bush said the US was ready to help the people of Cuba realise the blessings of liberty. And the US have been attempting to help them realise that by trying to repeatedly assassinate their leader for the last half century. But now that uh, Castro has stepped down to spend more time with imminent death, uh, the question must be asked, where now for Fidel Castro? It must be really tempting, John, for him to just knock on the door at CIA headquarters in Langley and say, come on, guys, have another crack. I promise I'll stand still. Castro said, actually, that he would continue to fight like a soldier of ideas. That's very good, because the pen is mightier than the sword, but the idea is mightier than the pen. It's like scissors, paper, stone. Pen beats sword, idea beats pen, which I suppose means sword beats idea. It does. That sounds about right. And that uh, now, he's going to continue writing his essays and also stated that I will be one more weapon in the arsenal that you can count on. But he really means this, Andy. He's going to be loaded into a cannon and pointed at Miami. He's a man of action as well as words. And what a way to go that would be. I find the idea of Castro dying in a hospital bed a sad anti-climax to a dramatic life. But I find the idea of him dying whilst being fired through the air at Miami to be movingly appropriate. <laughs> Castro himself survived 638 assassination attempts by the CIA, according to an ex-bodyguard of his, who, of course, might just be trying to talk himself into a better Christmas bonus. But it does mean that, statistically, with 638 assassination attempts, it is likely that at least one regular Bugle listener has at some point attempted to kill Fidel Castro. <laughs> is it you? Have a think, Bugle listeners. Perhaps you're one of our American listeners, and one day you were at a drive-in movie drinking a root beer and eating some grits... When you saw a guy kissing a girl in the car next to you and you thought, I've got to assassinate Fidel Castro, you jumped in a helicopter to Havana, fired yourself out of a cannon into Fidel's presidential bedroom and tried to hack him to pieces with a chainsaw. Think hard. Did it happen? If so, please let us know. Email us with your confession, thebugle at timesonline.co.uk. But I guess he will also be remembered as as the focus of some of the most slapstick-based assassination attempts in human history. There was the exploding cigar, the fungal-infected scuba diving suit. In fact, Castro once even said that if surviving assassination attempts were an Olympic event, I would win the gold medal. Now, perhaps one of his last acts as leader has been to provide the world with a great idea for an Olympic event. You could close the Olympics with that event, the 4x400-metre assassination avoidance relay. And I really think Beijing might go for that. It's basically an unofficial sport there anyway. <laughs> More news now, and Kosovo has jumped on the change bandwagon and is hugging change like a long-lost but still-alive dog. Uh, it's declared independence from Serbia, despite Serbia telling it not to. That proved not to be enough of a dissuasion and Kosovan independence is go, go, go. And yet in doing this, it has become Europe's newest country. Or has it? Has it, I mean, has a new nation been born or has it been a phantom pregnancy? The US have supported this move for independence, but it would have been pretty hypocritical if they hadn't after their own little tantrum in 1776. <laughs> a tantrum which has been going on now for nearly 250 years. And as soon as you've grown up, America, we will take you back. You'll come round... Uh, in American football parlance, Serbia has very much thrown a flag on the play 
uh, not at all happy. You've uh, changed. You've changed, Andy, since you got it. Root beer, grits, I'm, flags on the plate. I'm trying to blend in, John. Oh, I keep getting teased for being British. <laughs> I just love your accent. You sound ridiculous. <laughs> Opponents of Kosovonian independence, such as the Serbian foreign minister, have suggested that it is a toolkit for separatists. In Kosovo's case, that toolkit has involved a hammer, which Serbia has been whacking it repeatedly on the head with, a wrench, which Serbia has been crunching around its knackers, and some rusty nails, which Serbia has been jabbing in its eyes, plus a speaking spirit level voiced by Johnny Cash. <laughs> Up on the left of it, my friend. Wall Tiger, ain't no book's gonna stay on that shelf. What has happened to you? <laughs> what, what has this country done to you, Andy? I thought it's jet lag. You can't afford to come back here. It's jet lag. You're a shadow of the man who landed here a week ago. <laughs> I mean, that, that ding, is true, ding, though. Ding, it's... ding, 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 ding. If it is a toolkit for separatists, it really is a pretty bad toolkit because if Kosovo is the model for separatism, the key tools in your kit clearly are having ethnic cleansing committed upon you to such an extent that NATO have to intervene, being placed under UN control while suffering almost constant persecution, and having your communities completely torn apart. Were someone to give you that toolkit for Christmas, you'd pretend you liked it while politely asking for the receipt. Protesters have attacked the US Embassy and a McDonald's. It does seem that McDonald's tends to get damaged a lot whenever anyone is angry with anything nowadays. <laughs> it seems to have come to conveniently represent everything that people hate in life. If in doubt, smash up a McDonald's. No protest is now complete without it. In fact, the ironic tragedy is that the only way you could successfully protest the amount of McDonald's that are being smashed up is to smash up a McDonald's, and that just doesn't sound right. <coughs> There are fears that uh, Kosovo's step into the unknown could spark a wave of secessionist movements in countries that currently don't even know they exist. Other countries who might declare independence on the back of Kosovo include more bits of Kosovo. Uh, the old Yugoslavia is essentially a hydra, and as soon as a new country chops itself off the original Yugoslavia, it just sprouts more new countries. If it keeps going at this rate, by the year 2400, there will be more countries than people in what was the former Yugoslavia. There won't, but the point stands. Uh, also potentially declaring independence, Scotland. After 300 years of tirelessly running England, it seems Scotland now increasingly is ready to retire to practice bagpipes and wonder where its oil went. Australia, they may well be independent already, but no one can remember, and someone left the paperwork in a bar somewhere. And also potentially declaring independence, the New York Mets. Buoyed by the signing of star pitcher Johan Santana, Mets owner Fred Wilpon and manager Willie Randolph said in a press conference yesterday that the Mets will declare independence from America at the end of spring training and hope to be accepted by the UN by May the 10th. If the New York Mets do secede from the United States, they will be the first Major League Baseball team to become an independent nation since Kazakhstan in 1991, formerly known as the Portland Herniers. I've never seen anyone lose their cultural identity as quickly as you, Andy. Your wife isn't going to recognise you. I feel guilty about bringing you over here. <laughs> Now, Russia are concerned that much of Europe may splinter now and the trouble that this would cause. Do we, Andy, in Europe, have another massive war left in us? What do you mean, we in Europe, John? <laughs> you say we in Europe. We're Europeans, Andy. Be proud of your heritage. You've forgotten where you come from. No, I haven't. I'm going back to where I came from. You've abandoned Europe when it needed you most. <laughs> Europe made it perfectly clear how much it needed me, and that was not at all. That, that is true. <laughs> But does Europe have another massive war in it, <laughs> Andy? It feels like Europe has retired after the last century from colossal wars, but maybe like an ageing heavyweight boxer with a tax problem, <laughs> it could stage one more brutal fight. 
Yeah, but those are the ones that really cause the lasting damage. <laughs> Extraordinary rendition flight news, and the British Foreign Secretary David Miliband has admitted that two so-called extraordinary rendition flights landed on British soil in 2002. The two flights in question apparently landed on Diego Garcia, a British-owned Mexican who floats around the Pacific and earns some extra money as an Air Force base. He did say uh, previously that US rendition flights had not landed on UK soil when what he should have said was that they had. So, to be fair to him, he was close. I mean, he had all the correct yeah. words, only... he just added one too many, that's and right. that's not terrible. I mean, see, I'm doing it myself now. We, all make, we can all make that mistake. <laughs> This did take place on the British territory of Diego Garcia, prompting great scenes of protest from the British public, saying, why haven't we been told about this territory before? We've never heard of it. What do you mean protest, John? If Britain heard about this, we'd be dancing in the street saying, yes, we've still got an empire. We've got Garcia. <laughs> we've not lost it. First you tell us the empire's dead, now you're telling us it's back on again. I don't know how to feel. It's like finding out about a child I never knew I had. But this is another chapter in the happy history of Diego Garcia, Andy. There was a forced depopulation in the early 70s. Now, usually when you apply that kind of term to the British, it's a euphemism for complete slaughter. <laughs> but this time we were a lot more compassionate and we just drove 2,000 people from their homes. In fact, in a memo dating from this period, the colonial office head, Dennis Greenhill, later Lord Greenhill of Harrow, wrote to the British delegation this. He said, uh, The object of the exercise is to get some rocks which will remain ours. There will be no indigenous population except seagulls who have not yet got a committee. Unfortunately, <laughs> along with the seagulls, go some few Tarzans and Man Fridays that are hopefully being wished on Mauritius. What a charming, charming man. <laughs> but in March 1971, a civil servant travelled from Mauritius to tell uh, the native people there that they were to leave and the memorandum stated that I told the inhabitants that we intended to close the island in July. A few of them asked whether they could receive some compensation for leaving their own country. <laughs> I kicked this into touch by saying that our intention was to cause as little disruption to their lives as possible. <laughs> that's, that's the problem, Andy. Literally, there was nothing more we could have done, John. Who is to say if Britain had, had been irresponsible enough to leave the people of Diego Garcia on Diego Garcia, the Diego Garcia wouldn't have been completely destroyed by an earthquake. We saved those people. We saved those people by stealing their Also, land. you look at all the lottery winners whose lives are ruined by sudden influxes of money, and I guess if we'd given them compensation, that could have happened to the Diego right. Garcians. Yeah. Also, it proves that just when you think a relationship with a deserted island couldn't get any more shameful, it proves you're wrong. We've added insult to insult to injury. <laughs> And now, an update on the gay aims. What do the gays really mean to do to the world? Well, apparently they want to bring earthquakes to the Middle East. This doesn't come from me, this comes from no lesser source than an Israeli MP who has pinned the blame for recent earthquakes that have rumbled the Holy Land onto his parliament's tolerance of gays. If there is a god, Andy, that would have been a great time to send down a lightning bolt. Not, not to kill him, maybe just a warning shot to let this idiot know that he needed to shut up. <laughs> Israel, in fact, decriminalised homosexuality in 1988. That's right. Yeah. 88, meaning that in 1987, homosexuality was illegal. Yeah. What well, a tolerant land. 
The man responsible is a gentleman called Shlomo Ben-Isri from the ultra-Orthodox Jewish Shas party. You do know that when the word ultra is tagged onto the front of an adjective, the sparks are about to fly. <laughs> he said that the quakes had been caused by governmental lawmaking that, quote, gave legitimacy to sodomy. 5.1 on the Richter scale, one of these quakes measured. That is a lot of sodomy. <laughs> the earth clearly did move for those involved, and a porcelain aerial Chiron probably fell off a mantelpiece. <laughs> now, liberal buglers might think that drawing a causal link between gentlemen really enjoying each other's company and the movement of tectonic plates in the Earth's crust is the kind of thing that went out with burning witches. But if you ask any self-respecting, geologically qualified homosexuologist, they could probably make up something that proves it's perfectly normal. Just a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the claim that one of the gay aims was to abolish marriage, and now it does seem that there is another gay aim, more earthquakes... And the gays love earthquakes, Andy. I'll tell you why, because it makes them want to dance. It's like high-energy disco music to them. That's a fact. Other news, and the under-fire Archbishop of Canterbury has found himself subject to yet more criticism this week after a worshipper complained about his behaviour at a funeral. Halfway through what had been an unremarkable Anglican farewell, the Archbishop pointed at the coffin and shouted, You're dead! He followed this up by dancing in his pulpit, singing, You're dead and you know you are, then standing in front of the deceased's grieving relatives and chanting, Where's your grandad gone? Where's your grandad gone? After a peremptory amen, Dr Williams then flipped a V-sign at the congregation and hurled himself through a stained-glass window before spending the rest of the afternoon in the pub, spoiling for fights with Catholics. The dead man's son, Lampton Strave, commented, I paid big bucks to get the best priest available, and I thought that's what I'd get with the Archbishop of Canterbury. I did not expect this kind of behaviour from the head of the Anglican Church. I'm very disappointed. Dr <laughs> Williams was last seen demolishing a bus stop in Canterbury City Centre, shouting cockblaster at the top of his voice. Can you honestly say, Andy, that that was time well spent? <laughs> yes, I can. You're a father. What kind of role model are you? <laughs> Entertainment news now, and Nazi singer makes comeback. Oh, I think we have your full undivided attention. <laughs> Yes, the 104-year-old Dutch singer Johannes Hasters, who sang for the Nazis, has performed in his native Holland for the first time in 45 years. Apparently Adolf Hitler was a massive fan of Hasters and once threw his knickers at him as he sang Die Lustige Witwe. <laughs> Hasters uh, had moved to Germany in 1935 and became extremely successful. That is a bad date to be moving there, Andy. <laughs> Because as you walk into that country, you're walking past a long line of people leaving. And you should really be asking yourself why that might be. He is actually the oldest singer still performing in the world at the moment, which is a great achievement. But that's not the whole story of how he's going to be remembered, is it? He's the oldest singer who's performing in the world, who is also a Nazi. <laughs> you know journalists, they love a hook. It's like when Justin Timberlake still gets asked questions about Britney Spears. It's just like that. Only with Nazism. <laughs> His uh, Dutch agent has complained that Hasters' Nazi associations have made him a tough sell. I wonder if his publicist is having to be strict with journalists. OK, Mr Hasters will answer your questions about his upcoming tour, but please, no questions about his relationships. That's a private matter, something he likes to keep to himself. And, uh, oh, I nearly forgot, no questions about that whole being a Nazi thing. <laughs> In other entertainment news, the Oscar for the most realistic desk-eating scene has been won by Vin Diesel for the opening scene of The Man Who Eats Desks. And after a hacker was jailed for online stalking of Linkin Park singer Chester Bennington, Kevin Thornton, a former member of the 1990s R&B legends Call Me Bad, 
has offered his services to anyone who would like to send him abusive and threatening emails. I don't mind, as long as I don't follow it up with action, said Thornton. I just like having a full inbox. <laughs> and now a quick bugle audio guide. How not to chop a carrot. <laughs> fingers. That was part one of the How Not to Make Coleslaw series. Africa section now. And Bush visited the continent of Africa last week. Were there excruciating attempts at joining in with tribal dancing? Of course there were. <laughs> he wouldn't let you down there. Andy, you can't just stand and watch whilst they perform traditional dances for your benefit. That would be rude. Far better to join in whilst laughing about how funny it is. <laughs> That well, is Southern-style manners. Bush defended himself over the US's inaction over Darfur by saying that he hadn't wanted to send troops into a Muslim country. And apparently, the interviewer speaking to him simply stared at him after that <laughs> response, unable to form words in his mouth, dropped his pen to the floor as his hand could no longer grip things, <laughs> and after a few minutes was wheeled into an ambulance, <laughs> muttering incoherently. Because <laughs> it certainly seems that didn't seem to bother Bush too much recently as he was chomping at the bit to carpet-bomb Iran. <laughs> Bob Geldof actually had previously said, you'll think I'm off my trolley, but Bush has the most positive approach to Africa since Kennedy. And whilst your instinct is, well, Bob, you're not only off your trolley, you've fallen flying off it and smashed your head into a tree. <laughs> it's not actually true, because here's the strange thing. Bush has actually done a great deal of good in Africa. USA doubled during Bush's first term and is set to double again by 2010. I mean, this is the strange thing. Things have got so bad with this administration that it's hard to believe that this wasn't an accident somehow. <laughs> you feel there must have been an administrative blunder. It's just it's very confusing. <laughs> I can't get used to it. I'm quite unnerved by yeah. it. Uh, to be fair to Bush, he has been fascinated by Africa ever since he heard about its existence in mid-2001. <laughs> Emails now. And we had an email from Brett Sonnenschein apologising for something. Remember, we asked you uh, a few weeks ago if you had anything you wanted to apologise for. And Brett says, I'd like to apologise to Spain for blaming her for the sinking of the USS Maine in 1898. I think we all know it was my younger brother Ted, but since our mother tends to overreact whenever anything goes wrong, I pointed the finger at the first decaying European colonial power I could think of, Spaniards. I know this led to a war, national trauma, loss of empire and indirectly a civil war, but you don't know my mother. If I could give you back the Philippines or at least Guam, I would do so immediately. Sincerely, Brett. Well, Brett, <laughs> on behalf of Spain, gracias, apology accepted. Uh, this email comes from Victoria in the picturesque county of Suffolk. Pretty in... shit picture. <laughs> it is not a great picture. Victoria writes, Hello! Your description on the blog of Pakistan as politically jaunty led me to wonder which country you would describe as the most jaunty on the politics front. For the least politically lively, a natural choice would be the Antarctic, although I hear those penguins can get pretty hot under the beak. <laughs> Following on from this, I thought perhaps the Bugle ought to release a geopolitical top trumps. My suggestions for categories would be presidential IQ, number of bungs in brown envelopes and silliness of dictatorial moustache. I will only remember that email for hot under the beak, which is a phrase I plan to use somehow this week. And I, I advise all buglers to do the same. Introduce the phrase hot under the beak somehow. 
So do keep your emails coming in to thebugle at timesonline.co.uk. The best of those, not including the show, will, of course, be included in the Bugle blog, available on the website timesonline.co.uk slash thebugle, which is an ever-expanding, award-winning webpage, which we're hoping uh, in future to include photos of Bugle listeners holding up the print edition of the Bugle, still downloadable on the Bugle websites, in front of the least interesting places they've ever been. Or perhaps next to someone they can pretend is a minor celebrity. So do send those photos in the bugle at timesonline.co.uk. There's no need to sound embarrassed, Andy, when you tell people to download it. It's not you're not really you're not getting any money for it. You shouldn't be ashamed. That is free. You're giving that away. <laughs> and now it's time for the Hotties from History update. The global phenomenon that threatens to redefine our relationship with the past. <laughs> Krizna Santos, from the wonderful city of Detroit in Michigan, writes, I believe one sensational hottie seems to have been neglected. The snow-white bull which Poseidon gave to King Minos to sacrifice <laughs> must go down as one of history's greatest hotties. Not only did this magnificent bull convince King Minos not to sacrifice it with its taurine wiles, but it also seduced Minos's wife Pacify and made her dress up as a cow in order to suit this glorious animal's sexual desires. Wow, that is outstanding. This impressive act of seduction also created one of Greece's best creatures, the Minotaur. To deny this bull a hottie from history nomination, surely in this enlightened time we can realise the hotness of all species. They said you couldn't take hotties from history to the next level. <laughs> but that's just gone up three levels. And this comes from Ken Roberts in Houston, Texas. Let's assume for one glorious minute that that is Kenny Roberts, the motorcycling champion. Dear sirs, history's hottest hottie of them all is Carlos II of Spain, known as El Hequezado, the Bewitched, due to his myriad physical and mental curiosities. He is descended from fellow hottie Joanna the Mad a total of 14 times, twice as great-great-great-grandson. Wasn't it great being a royal in the Middle Ages? <laughs> See, uncannily different from now. Suffering from a ginormous tongue and extreme underbite, also known as the Habsburg jaw, he was unable to chew his own food and was a frequent drooler. Mmm, sexy. Bald, deaf and lame, near the end of his tragically short life, he took to sleeping with the exhumed body of St Francis of Assisi oh, in no. the hope that it might cure him. Oh. Alas, the 500-year-old saint proved to be just as impotent as Carlos. Oh. Without an heir, Carlos's death in 1700 ended the Spanish Habsburg line. We might have gone up three levels, but I feel we may have just descended five. Do keep your Hotties from History nominations coming in. We're approaching the end of February, so next week we will be announcing Mr and Miss February from History. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. You've got to go home. Sport now. And this week's sports section has been cancelled due to snow. Only time for a quick result. Political campaigning. Talk to action nil. Talk will play lies in the final. And now it's time for the most important section of the bugle. It's the audio cryptic crossword. Beloved of men, women, and children. Are you still across talking the globe. about this? <laughs> Sorry, John. This week's clue is 15 down. And it's a clue that shows how Britain and America culturally really can learn to live in harmony if they only make more effort. I'm going to check my emails. It's nine letters long, and the clue is this. In favour of a five-day international cricket match, initially Otis Redding is the guy waving a placard. The world was a better place without that clue in it, Andy. I'm just saying cricket and soul music can go hand in hand. <laughs> 
Google forecast and two forecasts this week. One, uh, will the snow stop in time for Andy's plane to take off tomorrow? Look out the window, Andy, what do you say? I'm saying that, you know, I might have to take out citizenship. <laughs> Hell yeah! Testify! And also, an update on uh, last week's forecast, how many bagels Andy would eat. Andy, it's not really been that many bagels, has it? It's been a few bagels, John. But it, what it has been is a medically unadvisable <laughs> amount of hamburgers. It has been that, John. 1.7 hamburgers a day, Andy. <laughs> I feel that I took a culinary step deep into the heartlands of America by, by having at LaGuardia Airport a pretzel dog, which, for those of you who don't know, it's is a bit of something that might have been a pretzel surrounding a hot dog. We also took uh, both of our first visit to a Dairy Queen. <laughs> Just what the Queen would have wanted from a fast food restaurant. Everything in a Dairy Queen. All the ice creams, in fact, come from uh, milk from the royal herd <laughs> of cattle, which live out the back of uh, Buckingham Palace in London. I thought you were going to say it came from the Queen herself. I was say. <laughs> well, no. Well, since she went through the change, that's no Stop longer been it. possible. Stop it. We'll be back next week. Will we? <laughs> I so. I think it's probably better for everyone if John and I are in separate rooms again. <laughs> so do keep your emails coming in. The Bugle at timesonline.co.uk. Photos of you with the print edition of The Bugle. And anything else you want to tell us about. The Bugle at timesonline.co.uk. Bye. Have a pleasant week. It's very kind of you, John. I didn't mean you. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth, Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now. <laughs>